We are in a series of messages called Imago Dei, In His Image, that is looking to Jesus as the perfect example of what it means to be human, what it means to be made in God's image, because Scripture tells us He is the image of the invisible God. And so, by looking to Him and His life and His teachings, the one who is both the perfect example of humanity and who is also God, we are thinking through some of the key aspects and issues of our own human existence in the hopes of kind of catching a glimpse from Him as to what it means to be human in that area of our life. And last week, we looked at Jesus to understand the image of God and its relationship to uh, gender and, and sexuality. And today we're going to take the next natural step and we'll consider the image of God and its relationship to marriage and singleness. And to get your brain going this morning, I want to give you three questions that I just want you to hold on to as we go through uh, the, the message together and process your answers as we work through it together. Jot them down if you need to, uh, but, uh, but here are the questions I want you to think through. First, how does marriage reflect the image of God? First question, how does marriage reflect the image of God? Next, how does singleness reflect the image of God? How does singleness reflect the image of God? And then finally, do marriage and singleness reflect God's image equally? All right, so there are the there are the three questions, and with those in hand, let's look to Jesus following the pattern that we established for ourselves last week as we will follow for the rest of the series, and we'll ask ourselves, what did Jesus teach? Next, we'll ask, what did Jesus do? And then we'll finish by asking, what did Jesus command? All right, so what did Jesus teach? And to answer that question, we're going to go back to a passage from which we only took one verse last week, and we'll get the fuller picture. Find Matthew 19 in your copy of God's Word, and let me give you some of the broader background to what is going on in this episode in Christ's life. This whole affair, this, this pinging of Jesus as to his opinion on the subject of divorce, was an attempt to trap Jesus by getting him to pick sides between two warring factions, really conservative liberal factions within the party of the Pharisees. And the debate was between the school of the Rabbi Shammai and the school of the Rabbi Hillel. Now, specifically, Shammai and Hillel disagreed on where the emphasis lies in one verse of Scripture, Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, where Moses wrote that divorce was permitted if a husband found some indecency in her. Now, Shammai, more conservative, said that the emphasis was on the uh, phrase, some indecency, and, and in concluded that, that sexual immorality was the only valid reason for divorce. Hillel said the emphasis, taking a more liberal view, was on the word some, think anything, and concluded that divorce was permitted for any old reason at all, including burning dinner, I kid you not. So, so let's see how Jesus answered, looking at verse 4. 
He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What God has therefore joined together, let not man separate. So now, uh, besides the fact that you now know where that part of a wedding service comes from, uh, what do we see Jesus doing? And it's brilliant, really. He flips the emphasis entirely. In his answer, he essentially says, you guys are trying to figure out how to divorce permissibly. And what I'm telling you is that God's intent is that you stay married. And he grounds his answer in Genesis, which is why his answer helps us understand how the image of God, how our basic humanity is reflected in marriage. Using Genesis, Jesus states that God had created mankind in his image by creating them male and female, equally created but specifically designed to function as the complement of one another. Now, if you've been present for our three messages so far, we've held Genesis 1.27 to the light repeatedly and allowed the light of the Holy Spirit to shine different emphasis in it, specifically the phrase male and female. In our first message, we held that up and we uh, used it to see that God is uh, telling us that everybody got the image, male and female, man, woman, boys and girls, everyone got equally the image of God. Two weeks ago, or last week, we we held it up to the light and we narrowed our focus to see that alongside Genesis 2, part of what it means to uh, be created in the image of God, part of what it means to be human is to have biological sex, which is inseparable from gender and roles. But today, using Jesus' answer, we see how the image of God is reflected in marriage. And we see that Jesus taught that marriage is a reflection of the image, listen, relationally. It is a reflection of the image relationally. Now granted, it's implied, not explicitly stated, but it does explain the hard line that he holds on divorce. If you would please hold your spot in Matthew 19. Let's go back to Genesis 1.26. It'll be easy to find. It's probably the first page of your Bible. Find Genesis 126, and uh, I want to read that and call your attention to something we see there. Look at verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Now, we spent some time a couple of weeks back drilling down into the words image and likeness. In that verse. But today I want us to look at the words us and our. Let us make man in our image. For the first 25 verses of Genesis chapter 1, God is referred to exclusively in the singular. But here, God speaks of himself in a plural way. And the question that theologians have debated for thousands of years is, what does that mean? And because uh, sometimes you get paid to research, there are a lot of reasons that theologians posit for that existing, and I won't bore you with that whole discussion. But let me give you the traditional view. Since the early church fathers 
and throughout Christian history to our day, the view has been that the use of the plural in God referring to himself here is a, a kind of a signpost pointing to the plurality that exists within a Trinitarian God. Although the Christian Trinity cannot be definitively proven here by the plural use, when coupled with the writings of the New Testament that equate God and Son and Spirit, we conclude that the Trinitarian nature of God is the explanation for God referring to himself here in the plural. Now, that's a whole discussion by itself. But I want you to see what comes next. And to do that, I'm going to read 26 again. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, there's a flow there that's important to see. Us, our, male, female, them. Us, our, male, female, them. Many theologians conclude that we are being told that mankind is a copy of the relational aspect of the Godhead in their equal but separate biological sexes and gender. In other words, the plurality of God is imaged in the plurality of sex and genders, male and female, when in relationship with God. Let me just put it another way. The male-female God triad images the Trinitarian God. And Jesus is telling us in Matthew 19 that this relational aspect of God is imaged most clearly in a marriage between a husband and wife under God's authority. Here's how. Go back to Matthew chapter 19 and follow along as I keep reading in verse 7. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Now there's so much to digest there, we have so little time, but basically, the people questioning Jesus say, well, you say you can't divorce them, but the Bible does, so why aren't you following the Bible's authority. And Jesus says that the reason you find permission for it, not a command to do it, but permission for it in Scripture is because of a sinful world. People in a sinful world, in a fallen world, can wound one another so badly, and he specifically cites sexual immorality, that many might feel their only course, recourse, is to leave. But, he says, that's not the way marriage was created to operate. God made marriage to last a lifetime, and by leaning into Genesis and the creation of male and female, Jesus is telling us that the reason that divorce is so heinous is because it fractures this relational image of God that marriage was meant to communicate to the world. Here's what I mean. Marriage was meant to image the relationship that exists within the Godhead, the Trinity, 
So when divorce is introduced, the image that is projected is one of a divided and fractured God. Now, on a brief side note, this is why we can't surrender the word marriage to describe the union between same-sex and transgender individuals. Those relationships don't image the male-female God triad in the way that marriage does. Obviously, in our society, that ship has sailed. But our beliefs should impact how we individually think through invitations to weddings and using the term partner instead of husband and wife in referring to the individuals in those relationships. That topic could be a message in and unto itself, but, but we must move on. Jesus shows us that marriage is a reflection of the image of God relationally, and that preserving this relational picture, this image of God, except in the most extreme of circumstances, is one of its primary, if not the primary purpose for it. This is what Jesus taught. So what did Jesus do? Well, he obviously affirmed the importance of marriage. He performed his first miracle at a wedding. He frequently used the metaphor of bride and bridegroom and wedding feast in his teaching. He used marriage over and over again as a way of understanding the kingdom of God. And he never married. This is an important thing for us to remember out here in Johnson County where the number of singles is far below the national average. There is a tendency out here in the family suburbs, a tendency to think but never say that being a whole person requires you to be married. To think but never say that to truly fulfill the will of God for our lives means that we must be married and we must be knee-deep in diapers. We think this but never say it while following an unmarried Savior who is the image of the invisible God and who shows us by his life what it truly means to be human. So we must ask then, how does singleness reflect the image of God? And looking to Jesus, we see that he himself modeled that singleness is a reflection of the image functionally and Maybe this is a better word to think through what we're about to talk about, a reflection of the image vocationally. See, after doubling down on the permanence of marriage, the questions start coming not just from his adversaries at this point, but from his own disciples. Look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, well, if what you've just said is true, that, that divorce is all but impermissible, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. Those guys were winners, weren't they? Huh? I mean, you mean if we can't get out of this any old way, man, it's just better not to marry. I think Jesus, I think that's there. But moving on, he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. And this is really the saying he's getting at the heart of. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. He's referring to, to men who are unable uh, through physical deformity or through physical castration to, to uh, be a husband and to uh, have a family. 
But then he says, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. What does that mean? He's not referring to physical, physically being a eunuch there. He's, he's referring to people who have made the choice for singleness. And why have they made the choice for singleness? It says, for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Then he says, let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. Jesus is saying here that choosing to be single is a God-honoring and fulfilling way to live for those to whom God grants the ability and the opportunity. So to a culture like ours that tends to view singles either as objects of pity or envy for their hedonistic uh, encouragement from the world, Jesus says single people are full and vibrant image bearers. But he also tells us how they reflect that image. They reflect that image in fulfilling the task of building the kingdom of God. Now, I, I will not have you go back to Genesis 1 again, but I do want to point out something of importance there in Genesis 1.28. It's on your screens. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, when I introduced this series, I shared that some try to define the image of God by uh, trying to find one particular aspect of the human experience and saying that is the image of God. I also shared with you that I don't believe it's wise, nor do I believe it's biblical to do that. I think it's best for us to view the image of God as all of that working together, which makes us human. And so there are many things in the human experience that cause us to reflect the image of God. But one of those things is our service as an extension of God's dominion over creation, which is what's talked about in Genesis 1.28. So when Jesus says that a purpose of singleness is the advancement of the kingdom of heaven, he is saying that God's image is seen in the single experience as they functionally fulfill what Genesis 1.28 says as they devote their lives not to filling the kingdom as married people have the opportunity but to advancing the reign of God and Jesus himself is the preeminent example uh, that that image can be lived out Jesus not only lived out this experience he valued this experience as worthy in others. We have no real way of knowing which of his followers were single and which weren't, but we know that not all of his followers were married. We certainly know Paul, who comes years later, is a single man. So both in his life lived and in those he has called to serve alongside him, Jesus showed that the single experience is not a less than human experience. He is showing us that there is a, a greater purpose to being single than simply having your friends try to set you up with your future spouse. And again, as a brief side note, this should speak to those who might struggle with same-sex and transgender temptations. If that's you, our culture is telling you that you can't be whole unless you are partnered 
romantically and intimately with another. Jesus and a host of men and women who follow him show us otherwise. You can find in Jesus a purpose that is greater than you could have ever dreamed. And in the church, your fear of loneliness can be alleviated provided, as we mentioned last week, that those of us in the church embrace those who remain committed to following Jesus in obedience to his teachings on gender, sexuality, and marriage. Jesus always got around to where the sin was, but he, he always embraced those that God sent his way. So we've seen that Jesus taught that the image is reflected in marriage relationally as the husband and wife live in an exclusive lifelong commitment to God. And we've seen Jesus model that the image is reflected in singleness functionally as their lives are devoted to the advancement of God's kingdom. So in light of what we see, what does Jesus command? And without a doubt, Jesus commanded that marriage and singleness be treated missionally. Missionally. In our world, I've already alluded to this, both the experience of marriage and the experience of singleness are celebrated as ends to themselves. Both tend to be seen in light of their ability to achieve the best version of ourselves, and so we treat them selfishly, even hedonistically. If as a married person, marriage isn't making me happy, I can hit reset. If as a single person, I want to be free from commitments to anyone or anything, I can choose to live narcissistically. This is the reason that we see spiking numbers of divorces and a growing number of people who choose to never marry. But as we've just seen in how Jesus modeled and taught about singleness, the purpose of life in marriage and singleness, as we've seen him say that it isn't about self-fulfillment but is instead kingdom advancement, we should step back from those selfish perceptions of those states of life. In a passage called the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives us a filter through which we are to view every need and want in life. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, all these needs that he's talked about before this will be added to you. You'll find fulfillment in him. So the purpose of whatever state God places us in to mirror his image requires us, whether married or single, to say from start to finish, how will my life as a single person, how will my marriage advance the kingdom of God? And many times that won't change anything you really do. But it will change fundamentally why you do what you do. It will change the focus of the normal course of your life. Blue Valley's main multiplying partner is the North American Mission Board, which is the largest church planting network in the world and the largest church planting network in the history of Christendom. And I serve on their board. And, and my sub-team that I serve on on the board is led by a man named Vance Pittman. Vance was a minister at a church in Memphis when God placed on his heart to move from Memphis 
to Las Vegas to plant a church. And the church that he planted, Hope Church, has reached thousands to the point that it has actually reduced by percentage in the, in the metropolitan area of Las Vegas those who don't know Christ. It's dropped from uh, uh, like two or three percentage points. But when he and his wife moved there, they did so with the understanding that God's purpose for their family wasn't to plant a church, but was to reach lost people through the context of their daily life. So a year before launching, they just lived as a family. He coached Little League Baseball. She got to know people on her block. And they led those people to meet the Lord. Not because they were going to plant a church, but because the lens through which they viewed their marriage was missional. Now let me say something. One of the dangers for people in this service, people who are active in family life, is to take that good gift of your marriage and family and turn it into an idol and begin to live very selfishly and hedonistically in light of that good gift that God has given you. And suddenly, you know, just when those kids start getting old enough and they're doing it far too early, speaking as a parent who had kids play ball all the way through college, they're doing it far too early. As soon as they start able to play ball, that becomes the primary thing in the world. And that begins to drive everything about family life. And we'll never say it out loud, but functionally, what we begin to communicate to our kids is your happiness is our supreme purpose. And they lose sight of the missional aspect that their lives are to help. Now look, again, my daughter played golf all the way through high school. She was good at it. My son played football through college. He was good at it. But they hadn't done that in over 10 years. I'm more excited about their walks with Jesus now than I am about their ability to hit a ball straight or to knock somebody on their back. <laughs> In fact, I've not seen them, either one of them, hit a ball straight or knock anybody down in a long time. Don't let your desire to give your kids the very best cause them to think that their life is their own. Now let's think about singleness. And she doesn't know I'm going to do this, and I didn't tell her because she would have made me stop. I want to brag on one of her own. I want to brag on Monica Graber Johnson. As you know, Monica and Kyle married in January. Now, yeah, she's not happy. I don't care. Um, <laughs> Monica and Kyle married in January. But before that, Monica was the model of how a single life reflected the image of God. She serves most visibly on our worship team. Uh, but for my money, the most impactful ministry she offers is to our student ministry, you see, there are a, a generation of girls, a generation of girls who grew up at Blue Valley, who learned what it was like to live a life of fulfillment and joy, serving Jesus as a woman through Monica. One of those girls was my daughter, and she loves Jesus, and she loves her husband, and she loves her church 
Because a single woman used her life missionally to invest in others to grow the kingdom of God. So in light of this missional purpose, Jesus taught that marriage and singleness are not to be viewed ultimately as means to our self-image. We are to view our marriage or singleness as an opportunity to reflect him to the world, especially when we realize that defining ourselves perpetually by being married or single in this life isn't a reflection of eternity. Jesus states that we will be neither married nor single for eternity. He says that when we get to that restored, restored world, the, the carnage of sin being erased, the need to image God among the fallenness of this world will no longer be needed. Thus, the picture of marriage relationally and the function of singleness becomes obsolete in eternity because we will be joined to Christ as his bride and live out our lives in the power of that existence forever and ever and ever. Marriage helps us show the world a Trinitarian God. Singleness helps us show the world the glories of the kingdom of God. Both of these things differently, equally reflect the image of God and cause us to revisit how we view everything about our lives in light of what God has called us to proclaim to the world. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.